0: Well, next week, we're going to begin a new series. We're going to be looking at the, uh, the seven statements of Jesus Christ from the cross. But uh, this, this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. And I know some of you, I'm sure, at least if I was sitting in your shoes, I'd be really wanting to know, what does Pastor Tim think about the Super Bowl and who does he want to win? I'm sure that's dominating most of your thinking right now. And I just want to tell you freely that I despise the Giants and detest the Patriots. I'm actually hoping for 10 scoreless quarters and every single player gets too injured to continue. (laughs) Other than that, I'm a very godly man. So let me me encourage you to open up to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking in the upper room discourses and and, uh, looking at team building through the teaching of Jesus Christ hours before he is about to die. You know, an out-of-towner drove his car into a ditch and he was in a, an extremely desolate area. Luckily for him, a farmer came to help and he had with him a big strong horse named Buddy. He hitched Buddy up to the car and yelled, "Pull, Nelly, pull!" And Buddy didn't move. Then the farmer hollered, "Pull, Buster, pull!" and Buddy didn't respond. And once more, the farmer commanded, pull, Coco, pull, and nothing, nothing happened. And then the farmer nonchalantly said, pull, buddy, pull, and the horse easily dragged the car out of the ditch. And the motorist was most appreciative, but he was extremely curious, and he asked the farmer, why why did you call your horse by the wrong name three times? And the farmer said, oh, well, Buddy is blind, and if he thought he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't have even tried. (laughs) I'm telling you, that is a perfect illustration for church ministry. I'm praying for more blind people to come to this church. (laughs) That might be okay that they're the only one doing ministry, because we have a dearth and a shortage of people Really honestly in this church that have said I recognize that I've been given gifts and I recognize it's my responsibility to serve I'm willing One of the primary principles that shapes my mindset as I approach ministry is teamwork I really believe ministry is best done in teams And with that in mind our board retreat if some of you might have been alert enough to notice not one pastor or board member was here this last weekend because we we take an annual retreat a time to recalibrate a time to dream a time to pray a time to come closer to each other and we did that this last weekend and what we did on the friday evening of that weekend and the friday session i walked our board through five team building principles that he invested in his primary ministry team, the 12 disciples, just hours before he died. Now, I want you to, to think with me about something. Here's Jesus in the upper room, hours before he knows he's about to be crucified. He knows what's about to happen. And he looks at Judas, and he sees the betrayer. Now, remember, he's invested... Two and a half years of ceaseless ministry effort into this team. This is his team. This is it. And then he scans the table a little bit more and he sees Peter, who before the rooster is going to finish crowing for the morning watch, will deny him, even though Peter very vociferously says he's not going to, Peter will. And then he looks at the other 10 disciples and knows not one of them. Listen, this is his ministry team that he's invested two and a half years of his life in. Not one of the other 10 will stay with him through what he's about to endure. They're all going to flee. They're all going to abandon him. And this is the church. This is the team. These are his disciples. Can't you imagine? I mean, listen, put yourself in Christ's shoes for a minute. You're a ministry leader. This is your team that you poured yourself into for for two and a half to three years. And not one of them will stick with you when the going gets rough. But Jesus knows the future. And he knows what those 11, 12 minus the betrayer, those 11 are capable of doing in the power of God. He knows that human history is about to be changed. The church is about to be born. What we're about to see from the upper room are five team-building principles that he gives. And by the way, friends, they are transferable to every single ministry team in the church. I hope to encourage you this morning. Number one, love. There is no ministry team that can function well without love. Friends, have you ever experienced doing ministry together, serving alongside men and women and teens? Have you ever experienced that when it's been done really in love? Where you truly do care deeply for those whom you are pulling and pushing with. Maybe I should ask that a little bit differently. Have you ever been on a ministry team where you didn't love one another? Where love was not the glue that bound you together? And did you last long on that ministry team? And I'm going to tell you almost always the answer is no. You won't last long if you don't love and if you are not loved. And Jesus in John 13, verse 1, I hope you got your Bibles open. Here's what he says. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, he knew he was about to be crucified. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, many years ago, Johann Lucassi of the Belizean Evangelical Mission, he came to the realization that Even evangelism in Belgium, it just wasn't going anywhere. It was impervious to the gospel. Despite every possible avenue of preaching and teaching and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, despite every effort they gave, no one would believe, no one would follow Jesus. He read John chapter 13, very much what we just read, and he came up with a plan. He took a group of Christian volunteers, Belgians, Dutch, Americans, and he put them all together in a team, and he had, had them rent a home and live together for seven months. Now, what do you think a Belgian, a Dutch, an American mixed group is going to be like? A lot of friction. Over and over, conflicts settled in. And so they began to pray, the group did. They began to pray that God would give them love for each other, give them victory over these conflicts. And finally, God brought them peace. God brought them a love for each other that was so strong, they couldn't even imagine not living together. And out of that, they went back out to the streets of Belgium and began to share Christ and the city began to wake up to the good news of Jesus. In fact, outsiders began to call this house group the people who love each other. You really think the gospel message has any credibility when we don't love each other? Love is vital. And yes, we verbally share our love. But you know, have you ever noticed that Jesus really wasn't very often verbalizing his love? Haven't you ever noticed that? He didn't often go around to Peter and say, Peter, I love you so much. I know you're struggling. I just want to tell you how important you are. He must not have read Gary Chapman's five love language. Because he didn't have words of affirmation really to the degree that we would think he would. He had acts of service because love demonstrated is way more powerful than love verbalized. And we get to see this as the chapter goes on. He he gets up from the table because guess what? The disciples are arguing. And what are they arguing about? Just like we do on our ministry teams. Who's the greatest? Who has to do what? Who gets to do what? Who enjoys the authority? Who has the most talents? So Jesus gets up from the table and he takes off his outer robe and he's Wearing the linen undergarments. And he takes a towel and he takes a bowl of water. And it begins to go around from disciple to disciple. And begins to put their feet into that bowl. And begin to wash their feet and dry them off with a towel. Do you know what is significant about that? That was always the job of the servants of the house. Now let me take that one step further because this is what really is the truth. That was always the job of the lowest servant in the house. If you were a slave and your your master put you into service, the lowest slave on the totem pole was the one who washed the feet of the guests. And Jesus says, listen, I'll show you What it means to be great. What it means to be great is to descend down into humility and love one another enough to be willing to serve. You ever been on a ministry team where you love to serve one another? You will not quickly leave that team. You know, one of the neat things that I look for when I come home with my children, I learned this from growing up with my father. My father would come home and his ring finger would. Clink on the iron railing and all six of us kids would scatter Dad was tired dad wasn't safe to be around when he came home. We always usually get the belt When I come home, I look and see what my kids do They scatter Do they stay where they are? Do they come to see me? So far my dog is the warmest person in my home (laughs) Obviously I have work to do But when I look at our board one of the ways that I measure the board's health When a man fulfills his term, do they want to come back on? Three people in the last month, month and a half have told me, Tim, I really miss being on the board. I look forward to that camaraderie, to that closeness, to that love that we shared. That tells me we're going in the right direction. Because have you ever seen a church split when the board loved one another and joyfully enjoyed service? Never. I've never heard of it. When a board loves one another, the church will thrive. The intimacy of Jesus through washing their feet was so deep, it was so strong that it began to jar them off the throne of self-worship and pride. It's the power of love. But that's not the only building team-building principle. It goes on. The second one, focus. You've got to have focus. You know, a basic principle in survival is this that if you don't have a fixed heading you will invariably walk in circles they don't know why maybe it's because one of your legs is longer than the other maybe it's because one of your halves of your brain is more dominant than the other but it's true if you're lost in the woods or if you're lost on the ocean and you can't see the stars and you can't see a distant mountain you're going to travel in circles in fact if one one group theorized this they actually put it to practice they took a stage. And they filled the floor of the stadium with white paper, took the participants, blindfolded them, put them in socks that were soaked in red dye and set them loose to find the other end of the stadium. Every single participant began to go in a circle, some of them completely back to where they began. It's a cardinal rule of navigation. You must maintain a reference point. And we get to see this in John chapter 14. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to, to Jesus, Lord, here we go. Here's your lack of a reference point. We do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I'm your focus. I'm your reference point. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the destination point was getting to the Father. But the only way to get to the father was to keep your eyes focused on his son, Jesus Christ. A ministry that begins to stop exalting Jesus will begin to travel in ineffective wandering circles. And we get to see this happen. If you want to forward to John 21, you're going to see something pretty interesting. It was about eight days after Jesus rose from the grave. And he had appeared to them and he said to his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem because the Spirit of God is going to come down upon you. But Peter, Peter's a man of action. Peter doesn't know what to do when you're just sitting around. So Peter says to six other disciples, hey, I'm going fishing. They're in Jerusalem. His fishing gear is in Galilee, 75 to 80 miles north. They leave Jerusalem, they go to Galilee, and they begin to fish. In verse 3, they said to him, the other six, to Peter, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and they caught nothing. They had lost hope in Jesus. They had become unfocused. They lost the reference point, and they're traveling right back in a literal circle, right from where they began. Don't you remember Luke chapter five? Where were Peter, James, John, and Andrew when Peter, when Jesus first met them? They're out on the Sea of Galilee in their boats. And how successful were they that night? Well, Jesus said, take your boat back out and throw your nets. And they said, but but master, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. He says, just trust me. Here we go again. So they went out in Luke 5 and they threw the nets and they have so many fish, they don't even know how to bring them in. Here in John 21, the same thing happens. They go out, they've been fishing all night, catching nothing. Jesus yells out from the shore, throw your net. They do, they catch 153 large fish, so many they don't even know how to get them into the boat. They drag the nets to shore. That's not normally how you fish. They're right back to the circle, right back in a circle, right back where they started. And what do we see Jesus saying to Peter in verse 19? We see Jesus saying the very first thing he said to Peter. Peter, just follow me. Listen, friends, if you ever are part of a church or your ministry team stops focusing on the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ, you will wander in ineffective circles. You will not accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. He is the focus point, and he is the reference. So we love one another, we maintain our focus on Jesus Christ, but there's a third building principle for teams, and it's called helper. Now, men, I want to speak to you. Ladies, don't take offense. Some of you likely are going to be interested in this, but I want you men to imagine that a very, very wealthy benefactor just gave you a Bugatti Varen Supersport, the world's fastest production car. It can go 267 miles per hour, zero to sixty in 2.4 seconds. It's got a base price, by the way, of 2.5 million dollars. Does anybody have one in here? A <laughs> couple people in the back. It's got a 1,200 horsepower and the aluminum narrow angle 8 liter V16 engine. But here's the catch. Somebody gives you this car, and you go out there, and you go to start it up for your first ride. You turn that key, or I think you push the button actually, and nothing happens. You get out, you lift up the hood, there's not a motor in it. Do you understand how perfectly that illustrates the church that does not have the power of the Spirit of God. We are the most potent corporation and institution on the planet. But without the Holy Spirit, we are absolutely nothing. And Jesus knows this and he says to them, I will ask the father, John 14, verse 16. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. He's saying, I'm about to go. I'm about to go back to the father, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to ask the father. He's going to give you another helper and he's going to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Listen, no corporation can get this. No Fortune 100 company has this power. This is uniquely for the church. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you and be within you. Four times in the upper room. This is all the upper room. This is all he's investing in his team. And he's telling them four times, I'm not leaving you on your own. My spirit, the Holy Spirit of God will be your helper and he's going to labor with and among you. Can you imagine the confidence that gives us? Listen, you get on a ministry team. Let's say you join the the audio visual team. We're about to multi-site. Do you know the complexities that go into multi-siting by way of audio and visual? We need more worship teams, more sound people, more video people that can learn how to run a camera, learn how to edit it, learn how to put it up on the web. I mean, we need a lot more people than we currently have if we're going to successfully multi-site. And let's say you say, I'm going to get on that team, but I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) It's actually going a little higher than you, Renee, thank you. <laughs> this is, remember, preaching is rhetorical, okay? I never really want you to answer my questions. <laughs> Renee and Ken. You have a helper, and his name is the Holy Spirit, and he gives you all that you need to do all that he's asking you to do. If he's leading you to serve in the church, maybe it is to preach. Maybe it is to teach. Maybe it is to share Christ, and you might be saying, but I can't speak in public. Well, if the Spirit of God has given you the gifts, he will give you everything you need to do all that he's asked you to do. What confidence that gives us when we serve on teams. But there's a fourth team-building principle, and Jesus is deeply, deeply instilling it, John chapter 17, and it's called respect. We need to respect one another on the teams. And how do we do that? You know, people ask me all the time, is respect something that has to be earned? An American pragmatic philosophy will say, yes. The scriptures might tell you something a little different. I have manifested your name, Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people, what's he saying? Whom you Gave me. Now listen, are you hearing the sovereign selecting power of God? Because in case you didn't hear it, Jesus goes on in his prayer. and The disciples are hearing it. Can you imagine what's going on in their minds? Yours, they were God, my Father, and you gave them to me. Two times he mentions this. And he goes on. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Every single one of those disciples, minus Judas, whom Jesus says... Every one of them, all 11 of them, God, the father gave to Jesus. That's the sovereign, selecting, electing power of God. And if you believe that, if you understand that, if by faith you embrace that, then guess how you look, guess how you view those people on your ministry teams. You really think you talk them into that team? If they're there equipped to do what God's asked them to do, God's the one that brought them to that team. And once we really understand that, then when I look at you, I see God brought you for a reason to this team to serve alongside of me. What respect I can have for you. It can only go one way up. At our retreat this past week in the Border Tree, we invited Tim and and Becky uh Poochie to come and to lead us through an engage your strengths seminar. Tim and Becky serve alongside Lee Manus and Bob Briggs and the American Bible Society. And they were so gracious to come and they ran us through a seminar and we had all taken this test called the Strengths Finders Test. Some of you have taken it. And what this test does is it purposefully identifies the strengths that you have that God has endowed you with so that you can learn how to live through them and in them for effective ministry in God's kingdom in his local church. Now, the strengths finder is broader than that. It's used in the military, corporation. We're applying it in the manner that I just told you that we are. And how incredibly eye-opening to go around the table. There were 18 of us men. One of our elders, John Piccioni, could not make it. Please be praying for him. He's struggling with cancer. 18 of us around this table, deacons, elders, pastors, and every one of us know the strengths that this assessment has identified and we can begin to see, wow, I can see why God brought you to this board. Because... Your giftings and your strengths are so ideally suited to look down the road and to see where we need to go and be able to figure out a way to get there. I don't do that very well. I see where we need to go, but I'm not good at finding ways to get there. And we've got other people that are on board that are really good at at getting with people. I mean, they can talk to anybody. They get along with anybody. They're fantastic at coming alongside you and saying, listen, would you be willing to serve with us on this team? You're ideally suited for it. You're going to find camaraderie. You're going to find people that love you and respect you, a place to belong in this church. I mean, all of these strengths sitting around this table, and often we don't know how to capitalize on it. You know what was interesting is that I got back and Denise, my wife, took the test. We are almost diametrically opposite, which is why she fights with me so much. You know better than that, right? And it's a beautiful thing to see how God so wisely brought into my life strengths where I have weaknesses and into her life, my strengths where she has weaknesses so that we can be a a couple that brings glory to God when we trust him and walk with him. To understand how God made us helps us live within his purposes. And when you look around your ministry team and you know that God's the selecting and the electing sovereign king of the universe, and he's the one that brings people to serve on your team, then all only direction that your respect level can go is sky high. But there's one more team-building principle, and I want to bring this one out. It's unity. Boy, can you imagine a team lasting long without unity? It is precious. It is a precious commodity. Yet the preciousness of something is often directly proportionate to how fragile it is. One of the most fragile things in any church that I've ever seen in my life is unity. You can literally have it today and lose it tomorrow. And we've got an enemy that is constantly trying to sow seeds of discord and separate us and to break us apart. And some of us were just too happy to comply Here's what Jesus says about unity. You see it in his prayer in John 17, verse 20. Father, I do not ask for these 11 only, my ministry team, but also for those who will believe. That's you and I. He's praying for all the Christians down the the line of human history who will believe in me through their word. Listen, that they may all be one, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He's praying for unity. But look how he changes it as his prayer goes on. Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he prays again that they may become perfectly one. Do you see why Jesus prayed that? He prays that they would be one and then he goes on and prays that they would become perfectly one because unity takes constant work. You can't be unified in your family, your team, your corporation, your management team or your church and say, good, we got that done, let's move on and get some work. It takes constant striving and guarding to maintain unity. And Jesus says, I want them to be one so that the world may believe. What he's saying is, if a church can't stay united, there's no way on earth anybody's going to believe the gospel. Listen, haven't you heard of horror stories of church disunity? It makes me sick. I know a church in Texas that split over a slice of ham. One elder got a smaller slice of ham than the other one. I'm not kidding you. Split the church. I know of a board meeting that lasted past midnight because they couldn't stop arguing over whether they should put new tires on the church car that nobody ever drove. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we use the same words, the same verbiage. I turned down one time years ago at church because as I was going through the search process, everybody sounded like the lead pastor. He's a famous pastor. You would know him if I gave you his name. They were looking for an associate pastor of congregational ministry. They were looking at me every time I talked to somebody up there at that church. They all used the same words as the lead pastor. That's not unity. Uniformity is not what I want. I want my own unique skills and gifts. And unif- unity doesn't mean that we can't debate or vigorously discuss a topic. That's not disunity to, not, to have a difference of opinion. But unity does mean these four, and they're on your outline. It means that you unify in love. It means you do unify in mission. There's only one mission the Bible gives. Listen, there's not a lot of missions. There's one. It's to redeem people to Jesus Christ. That's it. Listen, that's all God's doing. If, if a church figures out to do something else besides that, then they're adding in to what God's doing. God is all about redeeming people to His Son. And the motive is this. God wants glory to come to the Father or come to the Son. The Son wants glory to come to the Father. The Spirit wants glory to come to the Son. It's all about exalting Jesus. It's all about bringing glory to Him. That's the motive. And we unify around the Word of God. Listen, there's nothing else worth unifying around. If you ever, ever come to this church and you don't hear the Word of God being center place in what you get in a worship service, please come talk to me and let me know we made a mistake. It has to be built on the Word of God. And without that unity, the church cannot be relevant and it cannot be influential in the world. You know, Pastor Greg Sarat of Seacoast Church, really big church, doing phenomenal multi-siting work. He told of his grandfather years ago, who the half of the church got really mad at his grandfather, who was the pastor. They split. Except that half that split had paid for the building as well, so they refused to leave the building. Fortunately, I guess, there was a center aisle, so everybody that liked his grandfather sat on one side, literally, and everybody who didn't like him sat on the other side. And when it came time to testimony, to give testimonies in the church, if somebody on this side gave a testimony, and then somebody on that side had to give a longer, louder testimony of greater things that God had done. And if somebody on this side, it was a Pentecostal church, spoke in tongues, and then somebody on that side had to speak in louder, longer, faster tongues. And this went on for years until finally, Greg Surratt's father, grandfather said, Why am I still here? This is ridiculous this is defaming the name of christ and he left can i please tell you that's a tame story i have many many worse ones i could have told you this unity is rife in the church and it cannot be and we've got to strive vigorously for unity around those four crucial building blocks love and mission and motive and the word of god Unity is something worth praying for. Jesus just gave five principles to his team. How do you build your ministry team? It's true for every ministry team in this church from the board on down. First, you build it on love. Then you build it around a focus on Jesus. And you remember who your helper is, the Spirit of God. He won't leave you. He labors with you. And you respect each other because you know that God selected that person for your team and uniquely gave them gifts for this purpose. And you strive and do not ever let go of unity. Can we do that? We are heading into, as Bob makes his way down here, we are heading into, I think, perhaps the most exciting season of ministry in Cornerstone's history. Now listen. It's also the most susceptible to our enemy because we are about to hire staff and launch multi-site later this year. And I can guarantee you that our enemy is rubbing his hands together and wanting to sow seeds of discord. How will we stay together? Well, there's five principles that Jesus says. This is how you do ministry. Let's learn them and live them.